Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Brilliant. Exploration and colonization, for good and ill, have often driven human progress through the ages, from the known world to the new world, and one day, to a new planet. A red planet, Mars. So today we are continuing our look at becoming an interplanetary species by looking at how we will get our first manned mission to Mars, and why that probably should be a permanent base. Mars will be the first planet we colonize, and unlike our previous colonization efforts with often tragic results, Mars appears to be entirely uninhabited, except by alien robots we sent there to begin the job of scouting the Red Planet for when we arrive, first with a base, and eventually, a colony. In Parts 1, 2, and 3 of this series, we looked at getting our basic space infrastructure in place and setting up resource extraction on the Moon for raw materials and fuel, and now in Part 4 we'll look at establishing our first major base and way station for our continuing journey farther outboard, and if you haven't already seen those you might want to give them a watch before proceeding today. As before, we'll be loosely following the National Space Society's Roadmap to Space Settlement as a guide, and I have linked the complete document in the episode description. Milestones 22 through 25 out of 31 are focused on Mars. It is worth noting that unlike our explorations of the Moon, or even places on Earth like Antarctica, no serious contemplation is given to simply sending astronauts to Mars for a few days and bringing them home with some rock samples. The reason for this is simple enough, Mars is hundreds of times farther from Earth than the Moon is, and with current technology we cannot spend a few days traveling to Mars, spend a few days there then come home. At its closest, Mars is 54.6 million kilometers from Earth, and at its farthest, 401 million kilometers. Indeed, even with an engine that could accelerate and decelerate at a constant 1G, which is as fast as humans could comfortably handle accelerating for hours at a time, the journey at its closest would take about 42 hours, or just under 2 days, at its furthest, 159 hours or just under a week. We do not have anything even vaguely capable of that in our current inventory, though we will discuss how to build a system capable of allowing such speeds. Now we have rocket engines that can do 1G, indeed a good deal more since a 1G rocket won't get you off Earth, it will just hover in place since that's the same acceleration Earth exerts on us. However, they only burn for short periods of time, not hours, let alone days. You have probably heard the term specific impulse before, and this is how long a propellant-only rocket can run at a 1G acceleration rate or hover over Earth. In practice they squeeze that time up to burn faster, as again you can't leave the ground without doing more than 1G, but most rockets measure their specific impulse in hundreds of seconds. There are almost 100,000 seconds in a day, so rockets that could fly to Mars under constant acceleration and deceleration, which is also incredibly wasteful, would need to have a thousand times modern rocket fuel's specific impulse. Now we do have some engines that can do better than chemical rockets in terms of specific impulse, but they generally cannot produce anything approaching a 1G burn, even though they can provide acceleration far longer, such as an ion drive. Now why does this matter? To get to Mars by conventional rockets is mostly a matter of timing and minimal fuel use, because the more fuel you need to use, the less stuff you can bring on your trip. 
At its farthest, it is seven times farther away than at its closest, so this is where we get into launch windows. However, it's not quite as simple because planets move and very fast, so you can't just wait to launch when Mars is closest, which happens every 780 days, the Earth-Mars synodic period. Mars and Earth respectively orbit the Sun in 687 and 365.25 Earth days, so every 780 Earth days, Mars completes 1.135 orbits, while the Earth completes 2.135, exactly one more than Mars did. Earth is like the fast runner on a track lapping a slower runner and waving as he passes. Mars orbits the Sun farther out and slower than we do, so we are actually lobbing a rocket backwards relative to Earth. The trajectory that completes this trip using the minimum fuel or energy, called a Hohmann transfer, involves launching from Earth about two months before Earth's closest approach to Mars, and entering an elliptical orbit around the Sun that intersects Mars' orbit 260 days or almost nine months later. Mars has less gravity than Earth and little atmosphere, so it has to arrive slow enough that we don't need to burn a ton of fuel to get captured in Mars' orbit or down to its surface. If we had better rockets we could use launch windows that would get us there faster, and then slow to match speed with Mars, or just use those same minimum launch windows to send more stuff, but for the near future, the most efficient trip is the trip people are making. We had a launch window this summer of 2020, and had we sent a manned mission it would have arrived in early 2021, then the launch window from Mars back to Earth would have been early June of 2022, almost two years after they launched from Earth, and they'd arrived back at Earth in February of 2023, not much short of three years of total travel time, with almost 15 months on Mars. Now that is the minimum energy launch. We also do have options for a shorter round trip of a mere 400 to 450 days, and a fast Mars mission, which might only be 245 days for the total trip. We'll discuss how to do truly short launches later, but even that fast trip means nearly a year away for our astronauts, not the mere 8 days Apollo 11 took. It also means extended time on the ground on Mars, so living a cramped module is not an option for either the trip there or the time on the ground. Moreover, communication times to Mars require the better part of an hour, not just a few seconds as they do when talking to folks on the Moon, and if there's a problem, even something minor, they have to be able to fix it or switch to a backup because a rescue mission could take years. And we see a great example of that in Andy Weir's book and film, The Martian, but we'd like to avoid ever attempting such a rescue. All of which implies we need to make that first trip to Mars be one involving a base, one occupied for several months, which enables us to begin from the outset with a permanent facility. Before we can do that though, we need to be able to find the best spot for a base, to land supplies and equipment before astronauts even get there. So this is where Milestone 22, our first Martian milestone, comes into play, robotic exploration of Mars for local in-situ resources. Now of course we have already sent robots to Mars, and indeed sent more this past July, with three missions from the United States, China, and the United Arab Emirates all set to arrive there February of 2021. One of the many interesting experiments those missions will be carrying out is MOXIE, the Mars Oxygen ISRU experiment that will be conducted by the United States Perseverance rover. ISRU incidentally stands for In-Situ Resource Utilization, and in this case the rover's MOXIE unit will attempt to produce oxygen molecules from atmospheric carbon dioxide on Mars, aiming to produce about 22 grams per hour. This is a test for an upgraded unit that would run on a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, or RTG, to produce about 2 kilograms of oxygen per hour. 
humans go through about 30 grams of oxygen an hour, so hypothetically, a 2 kg per hour unit would keep 60 folks breathing, minus losses to leakage and CO2 scrubbing. There are many ways to get oxygen on Mars, such as through the oxygen in water ice or the rocks themselves, but sucking it right out of carbon dioxide we exhale is a handy way to deal with the CO2 buildup on a ship or Martian dome too. Now we often say that the only way to do a Mars mission is with extensive ISRU, and it is certainly the best way to be able to get your air and water and return trip fuel from Mars, but I should probably note that it is a touch hyperbolic. A human on a trip to Mars would be on a voyage that would last, with some reserves, 1,000 days, needs almost 800 kilograms of oxygen and similar amounts of food. We'll assume decent water recycling methods so we do not need to pack a few thousand kilograms of water. Truth be told, while that is a lot of mass, it's not really an undoable amount, and we would probably want to send supplies along those lines in advance to a Mars base to act as a backup and reserve for when astronauts arrived. So much the better though to instead be sending robots and ISR units to be able to find raw materials and make those bulky items on the spot. Water in particular is important as it's bulky, and there is ice on Mars, however, the sources for it in mass are at the poles, and that's not really where we're contemplating doing missions at, so we hope to discover useful amounts of it elsewhere on the planet. We also sometimes consider just sending along stores of hydrogen gas, as H2O water is only 11% hydrogen by mass the rest being that big oxygen atom, and we can get oxygen on Mars from almost anywhere. Those robot rovers and ISRU refineries though will be important for finding out what Mars has and where it has concentrations and extracting them. For instance, if we want to grow food on Mars we'll need nitrogen for those plants, and there isn't much nitrogen on Mars, but in 2015 our Curiosity rover found nitric oxide by heating local Martian sediment and being able to get a supply of nitrogen on Mars, rather than having to truck it all in, would be vital to conduct the experiments in agriculture and hydroponics there, not to mention actually growing food. Ideally we would also like to produce fuel there, much as we contemplate doing it on the moon, and it would be excellent to have a fuel generator up and running, able to fuel up our landers and maybe even our return spaceship, before we even depart a manned mission to Mars. Much of the fuel cost, and thus payload limitation of getting to Mars, comes from needing to bring along the fuel to get home, so having the operating fuel and return fuel already at Mars and made there makes it vastly easier to get more people and equipment to Mars and safely. Everything we do not have to truck in eases our burden for getting there, it also allows us to bring in even more equipment, redundancies, and personnel. Getting them all there though, setting up an integrated Martian space transportation and logistics system, is Milestone 23. We often contemplate a major component of this operation using an Aldrin Cycler, a large spacecraft named for Moonman Buzz Aldrin, who refined the concept of Cycler spacecraft to simply act as a ferry craft back and forth between cis-lunar space and Mars orbit. Cyclers are interesting devices that focus heavily on that minimum energy Hohmann transfer, as they are essentially making a single long eccentric loop around the Sun moving between those two bodies. In the case of the Mars Cycler, it spends 5 months going from Earth to Mars, spends another 16 months out past Mars, and another 5 months again back to Earth's orbit, then repeats the process every 26 months. You could think of it like a big empty train that drives around a scenic route but never stops. You would still have to expend fuel as normal to get people, equipment, and supplies to the cycler, but at least you have a big comfortable living space for the trip once you did. It is often suggested that we would use two Aldrin cyclers running on different schedules to cut down on trip duration, one used for the trip there and the other for the one back. 
Incidentally, these are often called castles, in reference to them really being large space stations that orbit the Sun by themselves, rather than spaceships, and it is very likely that such cyclical castles around every planetary pale, possibly on very grand scales of space habitats, will play a large role in space development as waypoints for travel. This might not be ideal for moving folks to Mars on a regular basis down the road, or other planets, again this works for any two heavenly bodies orbiting the Sun, but it is great for moving durable goods since you do not care if your food, water, air, and equipment are making a slow journey, especially if you can run some hydroponics at your destination and on your ships to provide fresh foods like leafy greens and fruit. Indeed you might set yourself up a hydroponics facility on such a cycle to provide some of that. As mentioned, you can set this up with any pair of planets, or indeed between stars, and we'll examine this notion more in interstellar cycles in a few weeks, but needless to say, those kind definitely need to be on the large and self-sufficient side. The cyclo castles never truly enter orbit of either celestial body in favor of a spacecraft exiting or entering it, and thus can be a massive affair with plenty of shielding equipment. There is no fuel used by it except for minimal corrections and day-to-day operations, which could be mostly solar-powered, though it does go well out past Mars and solar is pretty weak at that point, making RTGs very attractive as a power source. As we discussed in Part 3 in regard to the Moon, having breeder reactors on the Moon producing the preferred RTG isotopes is an attractive option that would be available to us if we wait for manned missions to Mars until after we have lunar and cislunar infrastructure in place. However, we might want to be considering the Martian moons in our thinking, not just our own. They are a great source for raw materials, and there is a chance there is water ice on those tiny moons of Phobos and Deimos, which would allow water, fuel, and oxygen production in Martian orbit, without needing to land equipment to Mars to do it or fly fuel made on Mars back up to the spaceship orbiting it for the return trip. Setting up operations on one of those moons instead of Mars itself is another good reason to use robots for ISRU operations, as I suspect a lot of astronauts would balk at making that first multi-year manned trip to Mars and never landing there. Setting up a permanent ISRU facility, manned or robotic, on these moons, before doing one on Mars itself, might be a wise idea especially if we do find ice in the craters of these moons. Getting to Mars and setting up facilities there might be exactly backwards of how we did Earth starting from orbital development and moving down to ground-side development, either way though, Martian orbital development will be critical in settling Mars, and one of the ways we might do that is by setting up a fast and powerful light or laser pushing system between Mars orbit and cislunar orbit. As we discussed in Part 2, Cislunar Colonization, a solar sail at Earth distance from the Sun only gets 8 newtons of thrust per square kilometer sail, and out at Mars it's a bit under half that as solar radiation per area is weaker there, but solar sails are an attractive option because you can make an entire square kilometer of sail out of less than a ton of material, and it's very simple, just aluminum foil or similar, and you get far more work in the long term from that sail than you would out of a ton of rocket fuel, and that is if what is pushing them is just sunlight in its normal diffuse form. Large mirrors or laser arrays orbiting Earth and Mars could focus beams in on solar sails on a spaceship and push it far faster. A 100-ton spaceship focused on just moving people back and forth from Earth to Mars, with a sail just big enough to keep the beam focused on it, could move at a 1G acceleration this way, but would require around 100,000 square kilometers of orbital mirrors, an area parallel to Kentucky or Tennessee, but massing no more than an aircraft carrier and arguably easier to build, and would allow travel times for ships of mere days. You can do better by bouncing the beam between the sail and mirror several times, 
and of course you can move ships fairly quickly still without using that constant 1G push approach, similarly you might also turn that beam into electricity and give ships an electromagnetic shove out of a mass driver to augment the sail's thrust. This is a little bit further ahead in Mars colonization than we are looking at today, but even a more modest mirror array built on the Moon and sent there, or built on the Martian moons, could help a lot with fuel budgets and what's more, will be very handy for Mars itself. Mars is rather cold as it doesn't get as much sunlight as us, and being able to bring in some extra sunlight from orbital mirrors shining down our base may be a very handy thing for early Mars development. We contemplate that more in our Outward Bound series episodes Colonizing Mars and Springtime on Mars. Once we have that planetary transport network set up though, Milestone 23, be it in a modest fashion or something more elaborate, we are ready for Milestone 24, our continuously occupied, multi-purpose Mars surface base. If luck is on our side and our robotic and orbital radar surveys went well, we will be able to establish this somewhere near the warmer equator, but also near a source of subsurface ice we can use for water and perhaps fuel. Incidentally the equator is doubly attractive, not just for warmth and solar power, but also because launching back to orbit is easier there, even more than on Earth, as Mars has a lower orbital velocity than Earth but has a day length just a little longer, and an equatorial velocity to add to your launch speed cuts down on fuel costs a lot on Mars. Now if we can't find ice away from the poles on Mars, we might have to put a base near the poles and possibly use orbital mirrors to beam light down to it, or convert into microwaves and beam the energy down that way, as we discussed in Power Satellites. But the equator is our initial preference if we can get water near there, and hopefully a supply of nitrogen. This first base has to be able to operate safely for a year, and preferably more, and ideally be as self-sufficient as we can make it. From the outset it will have personnel arriving with the intent of bringing them home while bringing new crew in, probably in overlapping shifts. Though much of this depends on how well humans can handle the lower Martian gravity, which is why one of our earlier milestones was testing that on spin gravity habitats in Earth's orbit. Hopefully it will have in-situ production of air, water, electricity, and fuel. Another boon would be kilns able to produce bricks and possibly glass panels for buildings and domes, potentially allowing some of our air recycling to be done by plants as we experiment with botany on Mars, and maybe basic food production to supplement supplies brought in. Another big game changer will be bringing some 3D printers and feedstock for them, so that many items that are non-urgent might not need redundant copies brought along, in favor of printing them if they break or get lost. 3D printing, especially from materials we could get on Mars, massively enhances a lot of what we can do there, because if we want to run an experiment or start a project, in many cases we could print the materials for the projects there. If you've read up on Apollo 13 or seen the excellent film on it by Tom Hanks, you probably remember them taking copies of everything they had on the ship and giving it to the engineers and saying use this to fix the problem, because that's all they had. And we see something similar in the book The Motion and its film adaptation. Right now, what's on the ship is all you've got to fix problems or scratch experiments together, With a 3D printer, even a fairly simple and slow one, you can manufacture things so long as you've got the blueprint. More sophisticated 3D printers will widen our options, so we'll likely feature in every future manned mission, be it Mars, the Moon, or anywhere else. And probably future robotic missions too. Needless to say, the better your printers, and the better you are at ISRU extraction and processing materials for printer feedstock, the better. If we get them and our robots are good enough, and we improve both every day, we may be able to have that first base assembled before astronauts even arrive, 
and able to produce equipment and construction material in situ, allowing us to expand that base. If you've got that, and you've got your Aldrin Cyclocastles, you can run that base and robustly, whether you're using those castles for bringing in personnel too, or just all durable supplies you can't fabricate down at that base. Needless to say, if you've got that systemal infrastructure and moon base we discussed in the previous episodes, this all becomes far easier, both from those space-based resources and from all the practical knowledge and developments likely to come with them for use on Mars. If we can do this, then it is simply a matter of expanding, and we have an entire planet and its resources now at our fingertips to do that. Our base on Mars can hopefully expand and grow into a permanent settlement, Milestone 25, differing from a continuous base in there would be a place people lived, which would include children and pets. We looked at what those settlements might turn into in our episode Colonizing Mars, but a critical component of such a settlement is not that it needs to be self-sufficient, as that always helps but no settlement in our solar system needs to be able to operate in a vacuum, metaphorically speaking of course. Rather to grow at that point it needs to begin having an economy that encourages migration there. In the short term though, we'll have no shortage of volunteers and can easily support thousands of people there simply on the value of the research. Often when talking about space we talk of needing purposes beyond mere scientific endeavor, but it is important to remember that R&D makes up a couple percent of the economy and fuels most of our gains in other sectors. It employs many millions of folks on Earth now, and we already have tons of R&D facilities employing hundreds of people each full time, so one shouldn't think that a facility on Mars could not be a permanent settlement just because it was mostly about R&D, as opposed to something more obviously commercial like mining. Obviously at some point it must grow and grow on other economic sectors, and we explored that more in Colonizing Mars, along with terraforming projects in Springtime on Mars. However, while Mars settlements aren't something we tend to think of as economic benefits, this is not true of all space colonization, and we'll explore that more next time as we look at Part 5 of our roadmap, Asteroid Mining and Orbital Settlements. We were talking about getting to Mars today, and rockets and Aldrin Cyclos can be kind of counterintuitive at times. It reminded me of a fun daily challenge from Brilliant that helps illustrate how rocket thrust works. Imagine we have an astronaut who is coming on board an Aldrin Cyclo with some rock samples, but the docking maneuver malfunctions and she finds herself floating in space with nothing but her spacesuit and a bag of nine rock samples. Each one of the rocks masks about a quarter of what she does in her spacesuit. She sees she's drifting away from the cyclo but slowly and tries throwing one of the rocks in the other direction, and calculates her own speed changed by one meter per second when she did. What's the fastest speed she can achieve compared to her speed before she threw the first rock? By throwing all nine rocks. Remember that momentum has to be conserved, and when she throws the first rock, she is throwing herself and the other eight rocks in the other direction. If you're curious about the result, and as a hint it is not 9 meters per second, it is one of the problems in Brilliant's Daily Challenge Archive from September 2020. One of the neat things about Brilliant is that if you have problems solving their daily challenges, there's a discussion section below for helping you figure out the answers, and another is that they have courses and quizzes connected to them so you can learn more about the concept, in this case the rocket equation that is so important to understanding space travel. Those daily challenges are great ways to get the brain going and I'm fond of trying them over my morning coffee, and it's a good reminder that the best way to learn and to keep learning is to challenge yourself every day, and to have fun doing it.
If you're looking for a place you can go to improve your knowledge of math, science, and computer science at your own pace and in a fun way, try out Brilliant today, for free. Just go to brilliant.org slash Isaac So that will wrap us up for today, but we'll be returning to Part 5 of Becoming an Interplanetary Species to look at asteroid mining and orbital settlements on November 19, 2020. Before that we've got our monthly livestream Q&A this Sunday, October 25th at 4pm Eastern Time, then we'll close out October with our Halloween special, Terrifying Aliens. Then we'll start November off by looking at what it takes to become a post-scarcity Kardashev-1 civilization, then we'll discuss interstellar trade, including some novel uses of those cyclocastles we looked at today. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to our channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or our website, IsaacArthur.net, which are linked in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week!